This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, coming to you soon from a patriotic pub table where we'll be nervously drinking for England very soon. I'm Dorian Linsky, and joining me this week are two of our lockdown legends. Ben Stewart is one quarter of the performance protest group led by Donkeys, whose book is still available from all remote booksellers and now real bookshops. Hello, Ben. How are Hello. you? Hello. Good, thanks. So it's already been a banner year for protests. Uh, all the good stuff caught in camera. You're an expert on, on the sort of imagery of protest. What do you think uh, will be the most enduring image of this time, at least so far? Oh, God, what a question. Um... I'll tell you what, I was I was um, on my phone uh, Saturday before last and Will, one of the Led by Donkeys guys, sent through the picture of Patrick Hutchinson, the, the BLM protester who was carrying the far right protester to safety and looked at that. And Will, who's a professional photographer, said, well, that's the World Press Photo 2020 award sorted then, isn't it? It was an absolutely stunning photo and was made the more perfect when it was revealed that the guy who Patrick was carrying to safety was actually an ex-cop. So it felt like, you know, that had held the whole of the Black Lives Matter story in one picture. And it was just an absolutely stunning picture. And I think we're going to be looking at it for years, if not decades to come. Um, The toppling of the Edward Coulson statue was really an iconic image. I mean, I'm one of the vanishingly small people in the country, 13% of us, I think, who thought that was entirely justified. I think that the, you know, it's a high bar to get over to justify legal action. But for various reasons, I thought that got over it. And it was an electrifying image that went around the world and has actually caused, you know, copycat actions around the world. Even, you know, someone tried to topple the Andrew Jackson statue outside um, the White House a couple of nights ago. And I think we're going to be seeing that image for a long time. Um, but I don't think we've seen, I mean, you know, some people compare 1968 to 20, uh, 2020 to 1968. And I don't think we've seen anything like the Mexico Olympics with Tommy Smith and John Carlos with their fists raised yet, which I think is one of the greatest protest pictures of all time. But we've got a long way to go in this year and we've got the um, Trump-Biden election. So I'm sure there's going to be some absolutely stunning images coming out. And obviously it's not just the uh, the left that can do guerrilla marketing. Um, the White Lives Matter Burnley banner um got a lot certainly got a lot of attention um is does that mean does that make it a success the fact that it got a lot of attention even though most of the attention was of course fuck off don't do that oh i mean it was a it was a terrible message but it was also just absolutely terrible aesthetics 
I mean, the design was an atrocity. It looked like a sort of 1983 advert for a used car dealership. It drew immediate condemnation from the Burnley captain. The guy who took responsibility for it has been banned from Burnley for life. His wife has been suspended from her job because it turns out that the attention that this brought brought attention to some racist posts that she'd allegedly made on social media. So I, I'd say overall it hasn't met its key objectives. I can't, no. I can't believe they're even cancelling the wives of people who fly racist banners. It's shocking. Where will, where will this cancel culture end? <laughs> the, the guy was from a, 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 a thuggish um, football hooligan team called the Suicide Squad, and I think it was an apt name given how he's come out of this. Uh, Naomi Smith is Chief Executive of Best for Britain, regular host of our sister podcast, The Bunker. This week, she spoke to Professor of Chinese Studies at King's College London, Kerry Brown, about the ongoing tensions in Hong Kong. Hi, Naomi. Hello. What did oh. you... What, what, sorry. <laughs> Oh, I was just going to say, we live in a hot country now. <laughs> it's so hot while we're recording this. Who needs a travel bridge when uh, when we've got climate change? Huh? What did you learn from your interview with uh, with Carrie Brown um, that perhaps you didn't know before? Well, uh, firstly, I learned just how rusty my Mandarin Chinese is, um, embarrassingly so, uh, when you speak to someone that um, is totally fluent. Um, and second, uh, I had it confirmed that Britain are total shits when it comes to their former colonial subjects um and yeah if 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 listeners haven't given it a little listen please do it's only about 15 minutes but it's a really fascinating run through uh, of the background to the pro-democracy protests happening in hong kong so when you say total shits does that just mean that britain isn't interested because i thought there was a plan to uh to allow them citizenship anyway i mean yeah, well, yeah, there, there is. Uh, that's for BNOs, that's British Nationals Overseas. So it's not citizenship, it's the right to travel to the UK. Um, it doesn't, I don't think, allow them to work. Um, it previously uh, was time limited at six months. There's talk of that being extended. Um, but uh, look, Britain could have done a huge amount more um, to offer suffrage to the Hong Kongese when they were under uh, colonial rule. Uh, up until 1997, it, you know, Kerry Brown was, is pretty clear on the podcast that, that Britain did very, very little um, and, you know, has more or less abandoned uh, former colonial subjects the world over, you know, Ireland to uh, the Americas to Africa to everywhere. Um, and, and Hong Kong is, is sort of one that's in the spotlight at the moment um, because of the pro-democracy protests happening there. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there is a sense of, you know, among the government that we we do need to do something and of course we do it's something that um people like Paddy Ashdown have been campaigning on before 1997 you know to offer BNOs who didn't feel uh safe and that their rights would be protected uh under uh, a one China two systems approach um to be able to come to the UK so really it is the very least that can be offered at this stage we we may be making glancing reference later to Britain's habit of reneging on its uh, international obligations it, it may come up. <laughs> this week, are the Conservative right preparing to do the unthinkable and contemplate a future without Boris Johnson? With the Prime Minister accused of sleepwalking through the COVID crisis and dropping the ball on Brexit, could he be torn down by the same people who built him up? Plus, we'll be discussing the future of education after COVID and Brexit with our special guest, Martin McQuillan, a professor who writes on education for the New European and tweets as at HE underscore analyst. And we'll be looking at Michael Gove's plans for a shock and awe media campaign as no deal becomes an increasing possibility. That's after a few reminders from Naomi. 
Just a quick one, don't forget our next live stream takes place on Thursday the 9th of July and it's on Zoom, not a socially distanced pub car park. Our live streams are exclusive to Patreon backers and there's an audio and video afterwards too if you can't make it on the night. If you're a new or old supporter, we're sending out reminders of how to register for the live stream this week. So keep an eye on your inbox. And if you want to watch, why not sign up now? Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out how. Live stream access, early podcasts without ads, mugs, t-shirts and more will be yours. Thanks, Naomi. Boris Johnson has just announced the latest phase of unlocking uh, restaurant, bars and tourism, but not gyms, pools or nail salons. It's all happening on 4th of July, just like in Jaws. <laughs> Despite this, there are rumblings of discontent in the Tory sphere, according to Dan Hodges in the Daily Mail. After Johnson was nutmegged by Marcus Rashford on free school meals, after dither and drift over social distancing, and being seen to surrender to the teaching unions, apparently, and faffing around on one metre distancing, Hodges reported that the shine appears to be coming off Johnson in the eyes of his supporters in Parliament. He reports the Tory MP has told him, I've already had two people come up to me today and separately say, I think Boris may have to go. Namely, before we get on to Johnson standing inside the Tory party, do you think that this next phase of unlocking is coming at the right time and for the right reasons? Well, clearly the economy is on its knees. Uh, remember last week, the OECD uh, published that it's now expecting the UK's recession to be considerably worse than any other uh, of our European neighbours. And investors today are hedging against sterling uh, in quite a considerable way. So some form of getting the economy going again, of course, is and, and, and was needed. But not only are we faring comparatively uh, dreadfully on the economic matters, so too, of course, we are on health matters, sort of tearing past that 50,000 uh, deaths and the worst excess mortality in Europe. And so on that measure, I personally think it's too much too soon um, because I was really reading both the body language and the words of Chris Whitty. And I, for some reason, trust him a bit more than I do Valance because he he gives off that air of feeling of of looking genuinely and sounding genuinely uncomfortable with government handling uh, of the virus. And he was incredibly clear there will be an uptick as a consequence of unlocking so much so fast. Um, and what I think is stupid is to do so much, um, such a range of things all at once um, by turning on so many taps. If the bathroom floods, we're not going to know which tap is responsible. And, and be able to turn that off, you know, isolate it and, and, and get it turned off. So I think that means we're more likely to have a much more wholesale lockdown again in the future because we'll just have to turn everything off again because we won't know which bit has caused a, a particular spike. You say that. I mean, I thought it was possible to, to um, you know, identify the sources of these outbreaks. There was a recent course in, sorry, there was a recent case in Florida where over a dozen friends caught the virus in a single Jacksonville bar. But that makes me think, if you're telling people to use common sense and stay alert, these things are not generally associated uh, with the use of alcohol. <laughs> um, like, how, how, how is that? Famously, people on alcohol can be quite bad respecting, you know, pers personal space, uh, physical coordination, judgment, so on. Um, mm. is, is, the, is it the pubs aspect, much though I love pubs, uh, that sort of worries you most here? Probably. And I just, I don't know what could be conceived as being common sense about both work from home if you can and it's totally safe to go to pubs like if it's not safe to do a crowded commute or sit in an air-conditioned office with you know your team of colleagues why is it safe to sit and have a pint or a meal with the same number of people 
in a, in a pub or, or, or bar or restaurant. I, I don't think that's coherent, coherent at all. And I, I don't think it's common sense. And of course, we still don't have this bloody app or decent tracing system. So I think it's really risky to release so many of us back into the wild all, the, all, all at once. And there's been also talk about pubs potentially having to ask you to register as you come in the door and give your 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 details and I mean you know this is a sort of slight where is me thing but I've had two bouts of really horrible sexual harassment this week um, from total strangers uh, as I've been you know walking about and and running around my local area and the chance of me giving right now the way I'm feeling my details to you know somebody running a pub especially if it's a bloke you know in my local area it's just not going to happen I'd rather not go to the pub than have to give them my data. Ben, it's not necessarily going to be a second wave. We've seen other countries on lock and they've certainly had to sort of, uh, you know, shut down uh, isolated sort of places where they, where they um, have identified an outbreak. But if there is one, do you think that it's going to be very difficult to get the same kind of mass compliance that we saw before and you have to bring in new restrictions? Because I think once you've allowed people sort of out of their cell, so to speak, how do you then tell them to go back because you got it wrong? Yeah, I, I go back and forth on this. Um, first off, I I don't think there will be another national lockdown, not like the one that was instituted on March the 23rd. You know, even if we're losing a thousand people a day again, I don't think the government will want to apply it. And I don't think people will abide by it, actually. Mm. I, I think it was a one-off. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult to do that again. It's a lot more likely that we're going to have local lockdowns. And the question will be, can they be made to work? There's certainly been a significant loss of trust in the government. It's not just me saying that because I'm on Romaniacs and I'm a Romaniac. You know, the, the, the data shows that. Um, the end of the furlough scheme will mean that there'll be significant pressure for people to work that perhaps hasn't been the case in the spring, particularly freelancers, but other people will be under pressure to come to work from their bosses. And these local lockdowns are going to require, you know, a degree of community cohesion. You, you, you stay inside because everyone else is doing it. And the people that don't do it experience a degree of social pressure and even they're even ostracized. It might be possible to create that local community cohesion in the face of a really serious outbreak. But nationally, I'm just not sure whether it's going to be possible yet. Certainly not from from the mouth of Boris Johnson, I think one key thing is the role that fear would play in a motive as a motivator. If there's a very serious outbreak again, um, that can be something that keeps people inside. But you know, in my own experience, I live in East London, and certainly younger people um, are not scared of the virus in a way that perhaps they were in mm. April and May. Um, there's a lot of people out and about. You know, um, raves have been broken up by the police, etc. So, yeah, I think if it happens, it'll be local lockdowns. And, you know, I don't think anybody knows how the public will react to those. Tony, it's a question of whether Johnson's losing his appeal in the party. Uh, people like us would say, well, what did you expect? He's Boris Johnson. Um, why do you think his supporters are getting cold feet now? What, what have they, uh, what have they no- noticed about him or decided to notice? Well, one thing to say is that, you know, and I read the Dan Hodges piece as well, but you know, none of these or very few of these MPs have been named in those pieces. And you kind of assume that if they're Brexit supporters, then they were previously allies of Johnson and Cummings. And of course, there's that odd dynamic going on inside the Tory party where many members of the ERG hate Cummings and are suspicious of Johnson. They hate Cummings because of bad blood during the referendum campaign four years ago. There was a 
a, a, you know, a tussle to try to run that campaign. They're suspicious of Johnson because they didn't think that he was a true Brexiteer. You know, Steve Baker was one of the first MPs to come out to say that, that Cummings should resign after his um, Durham Odyssey. So we don't really necessarily know the identity of these people that are briefing journalists and saying that they're very, very unhappy with Johnson. Certainly on the question of whether Johnson's incompetence is becoming clearer to people. You know, campaigners don't necessarily make good uh, administrators. Yeah, I'm a campaigner. If you put me in charge of a branch of John Lewis, it would be retail carnage. <laughs> you can't campaign against the virus. You know, the virus doesn't care if you fix the official death rate and don't report the number of people that have actually been tested. It just transmits, infects, multiplies, transmits, infects, and multiplies. And and these guys are being found out at the moment. They are really good campaigners. You know, I mean, we're recording this, I think, you know, almost four years to the day after we lost the referendum. And, you know, six months ago, they won the election with a majority of 80. But it's a very centralised number 10. Every decision has to go through that small number of people at the top. And that's entirely unsuited for a national project like getting this pandemic under control, where so many decisions have to be made on an hourly basis and look at the app. I mean, it's interesting, you know, if if Cummings wasn't making the decision about the app, would somebody further down the food chain have been able to make a better decision? Very possibly. Certainly, it was a prime example of what's wrong, um, you know, with number 10 at the moment. So, you know, they have been found out. Um, I think we knew um, when Johnson became um, the leader of the Conservative Party that many Tory MPs weren't necessarily enthusiastic. But what was their incentive at that moment? It was to win an election, to get Brexit done and to stay as an MP. And, and they fulfilled that objective by putting Johnson into number 10. They didn't predict there'd be a pandemic. And one thinks that certainly the better amongst them would now at least have the grace to admit to themselves privately that they did a grave grave disservice to the country by putting him there. And I'll just finish by reminding people that they knew, they they knew what they were getting with Johnson. Michael Gove was the chair of Johnson's campaign to become uh, prime minister in, in 2016. And all Johnson had to do was send a letter to Andrea Leadsom on time by 10 p.m. offering her a job if she supported him. Johnson couldn't get his shit together to do that. So Gove pulled out and said Johnson wasn't up to the job. Three and a half years later, they put Johnson into number 10 and look where we are now. Naomi, do you think that the ultra Brexiteers kind of uh, grumblings about Johnson is down to um, sort of the personal factors, that kind of bad blood that we talked about with people like Steve Baker? Or is there an ideological sort of outflanking that, that, that they've gone so far that Johnson isn't sort of populist and isn't pro-Brexit enough for them? I mean, I think when we analyse all of this, we've we've got to remember that the, the current Conservative government managed to cobble together a Brexit coalition of levers by being so purposefully ambiguous as to ensure that every lever could sign up to it and say, yes, my, my version of Brexit is reflected in this. And all sorts of promises um, are and, and were contradictory. So I think what's going to become much more obvious 
over the next six months. So once we're past this sort of false deadline of, of the end of June, by which time we won't be able to ask for um, an extension to the transition period, and they have to get into the nuts and bolts of negotiating a deal, is, is going to be who they're prepared to let down and betray, because this coalition of leavers can't hang together for any longer. Someone's going to have to lose. Is it going to be the ultras, the, the, the WTOs, or is it going to be the more moderate people and the, the red wall and the red wall voters who believe that manifesto promise of we're going to get a great deal? We've got this oven ready deal. And we saw it last year. Johnson betrayed the DUP in order to be seen to, to, to get the withdrawal agreement through Parliament. So who are they going to betray? Let's keep an eye on that. Which generation, which constituencies, which nations uh, of the UK? We need to watch them like hawks um, because these decisions are going to have far bigger political costs for them than than selling out the DUP. Our research at Better Britain shows that Red Bull voters want the government to keep its manifesto pledge on getting a good deal. These are the regions that will be hit hardest by the double whammy of coronavirus and no deal. Uh, and, and it's those switch voters that went from Labour to the Conservatives at the last election that expect him to keep his promise. Um, so who's he going to deliver for, them or for Frank Mansoir? <laughs> and, and, I mean, the people complain to, to Hodges, who presume are backbenchers, um, do you think there are significant cabinet dissidents too, given that, I mean, this is this is a sort of famously kind of craven and spineless mm. cabinet. Do you see anybody within the cabinet, uh, you know, manoeuvring to challenge Johnson at some point? Yeah, I do. And I'll come to that. I think the first point to make is let's remember how transactional Tories are in terms of their relationship with their leaders. They are absolutely loyal up to the point where their leader becomes unpopular and then they're savage, absolutely ruthless. And that will be as true of of cabinet uh, members as backbenchers, trying to get their outgoing leader to take all of that unpopularity and and toxicity with them. And they act quickly when they they do do it. I think it's probably still too premature to to say that there's much of that going on at the moment. Um, He's still neck and neck with staff in the polls and Starmer is way ahead of his own party. So I don't think they're in any big panic about his popularity drop just yet. But I thought Starmer was rebellion. ahead of him. Oh yeah, yeah, but you know, yeah, he 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 is ahead of him. But you know, it, 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 in in you know, poll of polls, and it, it's not um, like Starmer is way ahead. You know, sort of 10, 15, 20 points clear, where you know they would absolutely be be knives out. So I I think it's premature to think that that they're sharpening their knives at haste at the moment. Um, but last night we saw a government defeat. Okay, it was a free vote, so it wasn't a whipped vote. And this was over the um, uh, uh, the independent panel being appointed to assess, assess staff bullying complaints. And it was an amendment by Chris Bryant, MP. And albeit a free vote, we did have a minister... Uh, rebel uh, and vote for the amendment, and that was Penny Mordaunt. So it isn't just backbenchers prepared to flex their muscle when they disagree with Johnson. And he's got a slew of issues that they're all falling out over. You know, Huawei, coming scandal, lockdown restrictions, agriculture, food standards, good deal, no deal, whether to have MPs proxy voting or not. It's an absolutely fractious party at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Ben's totally right when he touched on, you know, the fact that you've got 
these MPs who were elected, some totally surprisingly in the Red Wall uh, last December, who initially felt that they owed everything to this Cummings and Johnson machine, but who now realise that all of those promises, the levelling up agenda, are now at serious risk because we've got a plague and we've got major, major economic woes. And staring down the barrel of a gun of no deal, which certainly wasn't in that manifesto. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think I think I think it's really difficult for them at the moment, and uh, they they won't hesitate to get rid of him if things get worse for him. Ben, one of the criticisms on the right is that he surrendered to the teaching unions, um, which is obviously a bad thing uh, for the Tory right. Do you think that's what he did? Do you think he had a, a choice? I mean, could he? You know, was 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 there a sort of hard man option that he did not pursue? <laughs> He, he didn't surrender to the unions. He surrendered to epidemiology. You know, <laughs> the high transmission rate of a deadly virus between people gathering in large groups in, indoors. And and also, to a certain extent, they surrendered to parents. You know, this is a government that rep- reportedly holds eight focus groups a week. And in those focus groups, parents were saying that they were deeply uncomfortable with being forced to send their kids back to school. And the reason was that those parents didn't have faith in this government to stop the virus transmitting between pupils at school. Really, only if Gavin Williamson had instituted you know, some kind of system to greatly reduce transmissions in schools would they have avoided this. Now, it, it's a really hard job. I'm not denying it. You, know, you don't get 30 pupils into a room and, and easily stop some of them passing the virus on to each other. You know, my um, my mum, the governor of a primary school, was talking me through the measures that they are taking to try to socially distance kids. And it's really complicated. It takes a lot of resources and it actually takes a lot of physical space if you're going to be able to do it. Lots of schools don't. But nonetheless, Gavin Williamson has shown himself to be singularly unable to get anywhere in this uh, and actually build trust amongst the parents of Britain. And you know, going back to what Naomi said about, um, you know, about the weakness of this, this cabinet, it's in stuff like that that the Johnson coming strategy to appoint a really, really weak cabinet actually undermines this government. Because the centralised number 10 is unable to run a strategy to get those schools open. You have to have a really strong Secretary of State that's able to do it. Williamson has been unable to do it. And one reason, one reason for the slide in Johnson's popularity is that parents are just completely nonplussed about how the government have messed this up so much. Naomi, another minister claimed that Johnson is more a brand than a politician, that one day he'll just walk away from Downing Street of his own accord to pursue uh, other lucrative opportunities. Um <laughs> Do you think it's possible he would just abandon the office he spent his life chasing? Was it that he wanted the kudos of getting the job, but not the challenge of of doing it? It seems like it's 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 quite a dramatic uh, thing for any prime minister to do. He uh, certainly doesn't look like he's a man who enjoys the actual graft of the job. However. Name me a prime minister who ever went willingly. You know, Blair forced out by Brown, uh, all all the rest of them because they lost an election or, you know, somebody else had the knife out for them. And Churchill, Johnson's hero, uh, basically left because he was incapacitated. So either no, he won't go, or he may go because of some similar incapacitation. 
One thing that I think is really under-discussed and something that maybe we should do a bunker daily on um, is this long tail of COVID. Um, and there are all sorts of groups popping up on, on Facebook and other support forums for people who are still recovering months on from the virus, even those that had uh, very, very mild symptoms. And it does still look like the Prime Minister is, is struggling a little bit. Um, he doesn't look particularly healthy at the moment. And there are certainly rumours of, of others saying that, you know, he tires easily and things like that as much as he's been trying to obviously do lots of sport in Lambeth Palace and Buckingham Palace and places like that and get his fitness back. So Mm -hmm. I doubt very much he would jack it in because prime ministers just don't tend to do that. But if he does, he may follow his hero uh, and and use some kind of incapacitation as the reason why. That's the bit where I do have some just sort of human sympathy in that, you know, when you do read these accounts of people who are still suffering from fatigue, mm. including uh, including one of the Cakewatch hosts, he's sort of tweeted about about yeah. that about months later. And so when criticising Johnson, it's like, of course, you can criticise his judgment uh, and so on. But I think sometimes when people go, oh, he seems a bit low energy, it's like, well, yeah. yeah, you know, I'm not surprised. Mm. Um, yeah, although Matthew Barrett says all that is just cover for Johnson all being crap and having always been crap. Well, both of these things could be true. He could yeah. be crap, and he could also be uh, suffering. He could be crap and tired at the same time. <laughs> yes, crap and tired tired at the same time. Crap. As as I often am. <laughs> um, finally, a question for both of you, okay. quickly: uh, Who would you put your bag of Brexit fifty p's on as the next uh, leader of the party? You don't have to give a date, God forbid. <laughs> um, huh. But who seems like a a prospective next PM? I'm going to say. If Johnson survives to fight the next election in 2024, and I think he will for the reasons just outlined by Naomi, I don't think he's going to voluntarily go and odds on he'll make it to the 2024 election. Then the next leader will be someone that's not even in the cabinet at the moment because the cabinet is just such a group of nodding dog weaklings. If Johnson were to pack it in significantly sooner, then, I mean, if he were to pack it in soon, then Sunak looks good because he is that rarest of beasts, a a competent Brexiteer. Uh, I think Johnson's going to hang on and it might be that we don't even know the name or the name of the next Tory leader isn't particularly familiar to us at the moment. Well, if we look at the betting markets, um, Gove is catching Sunak, uh, who is still ahead on three to one. Uh, But even Priti Patel is on similar odds to people like Sajid Javid and and Jeremy Hunt. So who knows? Um, uh, If you force me to put my money on somebody at the moment, I'd actually go with Jeremy Hunt. Priti Patel, can you imagine? (laughs) Don't don't joke. We've said that so many times on Romaniacs. But at least things can't get worse. And then they always do. In the autumn, university is due to start for tens of thousands of students. Now they're facing the prospect of a socially distanced Freshers' Week, online lectures and social bubbles. It's not just COVID-19 that's reshaping student life. Brexit will also have an impact. With Britain out of the Erasmus scheme and quarantine still an open question, what are the consequences for British students' options to study abroad? Conversely, Britain's universities are increasingly dependent on fees from overseas students. Will they still want to come here now that we're a coronavirus hotspot? This week we're joined by Martin McQuillan. He writes on higher education for Research Professional News and The New European. He's Professor of the Philosophy of Literature and Media at Edgehill University in West Lancashire, where he's Director of its Institute for Creative Enterprise. Hello, Martin. Hello. How did your university uh, adapt to lockdown? One one day we were all on campus, and one the next day uh, we were all on Zoom, uh, teaching students and communicating with one another. 
the university hasn't closed. It's been going on the whole the whole whole time. It's just hasn't been. I wouldn't say there hasn't been anybody in campus because, of course, there's been students locked down on campus the whole the whole time, and people have had to to cater for them and look after them. And how did they adapt to uh, you know distance learning and and all this at great speed? The academic staff have been run off their feet trying to cope with what is really a massive channel shift to accelerate everything online in a matter of matter, matter, matter of weeks. And some stuff people have got right and some people some stuff have got wrong. And it's quite difficult to do the things that you need to do on online to deal with student welfare and to deal with marking and deal with meetings and deal with deal deal, deal with teaching. And it's been a it's been a big challenge. And were some students trapped in uh, another country, either overseas students here or British students abroad when the lockdown began, uh, you know, before they were able to get back? Well, they were the students abroad had the same problems as everybody else who was abroad with the, the lack of the lack of flights, the instruction to to come home, the lack of resources to be able to get get home as as well. So we've had we've had uh, students uh, on on campus who can't get home, and we've had some students have taken a long time to get back, several months. And in, in terms of the pandemic. Uh... I spoke to someone on the Bunker Daily recently, Glenn O'Hara, about all the different ways in which um, coronavirus would affect the next academic year. Um, which of those things concerns you most? Three things have happened today, just to bring the listeners right up to speed uh, on, on where universities are at the moment. One, the first thing that's happened is the NUS, the National Union of Students, have announced a campaign seeking uh, reductions in fees, looking for for ways to be re- reimbursed for not having the experience that they they'd wanted, and I think that tells you first of all that there's a problem with domestic students and what domestic students are being offered and what they thought they were being offered because obviously a kind of online experience is not the same as, as being on campus. The second thing that happened today was that the the government has said that European Union students will not be eligible to for funding. Uh, in the UK system after 2021. So that's a big problem for u- for universities right at a time when they, they don't need it. So as of, as, of next, as of next academic year, that's going to be a real problem. And then the other thing that happened was the university's minister published an open letter to international students to try and encourage them uh, to the UK on, on the grounds that for some reason they might be put off studying in the UK given it's got the third highest death toll for coronavirus in the world. So and that tells you there's a problem on that front as well, and it's all coming together as a as a perfect storm for for universities that are really going to challenge uh, the number of students and the, therefore the income that universities have. And I can see why students uh, would uh, would think that they weren't getting the experience they paid for. But given all the other pressures on university financing, is there any uh, likelihood of uh, this fee reduction campaign working? The government's going with the line that um, this is a world-class service that you're getting online. There's, unless you've got really grounds for complaint and haven't been looked after, you're going to pay the full amount. That doesn't hold up to much inspection when you think about people who would have been on work placements, people who would have been in an art studio, people who uh, would have had access to facilities that they just can't have if they're, if, if they're learning online. But as long as governments and uh, vice chancellors, universities decide to stick with that story, there's little chance of um, of that of that changing at this moment in time. 
And how would uh, a no deal Brexit affect universities? Um, and would it? Which of these issues might that compound? Well, it compounds everything. I think in se- in several ways. One would be that you have this problem that EU students who came to the UK in vast numbers are suddenly classified as international students and that and will be paying for much larger fees and you're going to see a drop-off, certainly in the short term. In the long term, it, that may come back when when, the, when EU students are, uh, are used to paying international level fees, then they might come back. But that's, that's, that's a big problem. The second big problem is around membership of European research for funding schemes for universities. The UK... Uh, and Germany are the, are the leaders in U, U, EU research funding schemes. The UK gets much more out of uh, those schemes than, than they ever ever pay, paid in, and it's going to leave uh, UK science and research in a, diff, in a very diff, difficult place. But really, and, and of course the, the third, third problem is student exchange, which is Erasmus, but really the issue with, with Brexit and the no-deal no Brexit isn't even the money because all that can be replaced. All the exchange schemes can be reinvented. The problem is that what it what it does about values and the and the environment in which universities operate in, which should require exchange and openness and rather than exceptionalism. And turning to schools for a minute, the government has promised to create a one billion pound catch up fund from September to get children's education back on track. Um, where is that going to be spent, and is it enough? It doesn't seem like a, a great deal of money in. The current context. See, I'm always suspicious when the government makes an announcement of, of a figure like one billion pounds, like Doctor Evil. <laughs> uh, it's the most money in the world. It's the most. It's a big number. It sounds like a big number, but of course, as I think as people have already pointed out, when you divide it amongst the number of pupils it would cover, it's eighty pounds per per head, and it's supposed to pay for one to one tuition. That's not going to buy you very much one to one tuition. Uh, as a as a catch up, it's a bit like when the announcement was made on the fourth of May that universities would receive one hundred million pounds in brought forward uh, money for for research. You know, once you've divided it amongst everybody who would receive it, it's it's a it's a very small uh, amount amount of money. But what you see in schools and universities uh, at this moment is time, as you've got the people who run them uh, trying to run as fast as possible to. To do the best that the best they can, and it's just not a priority at this moment in time uh, for the for a government who'd rather make sure it's open garden centres than schools and universities. Hi, Martin. It's Naomi here. Earlier this month, uh, QS published the Glo- global league tables for universities, and um, for, I think it was the fourth year in a row British universities fell to their worst ever global rankings now uh, you know it it would sound as if this has absolutely nothing to do with brexit or or coronavirus um and is just you know a a bit of a decline uh for the quality or of the quality of our higher education institutions so so are universities the draw that they once were for foreign students and and even domestic students i always like to say that the uk really only has three successful export industries the premier league the arms trade in higher education. <laughs> and British universities are second only to the US in terms of the number of international students that they've recruited. There's a, there's a big draw to a, a British, higher ed, British higher education. 
And but the problem is that since well, maybe for the last five years, Britain has been stagnant in the number of students that it has been been attracting, while everyone else has been leaping for leaping forward. Canada and Australia uh, have double digit double digit growth. Even Germany is, is is attracting more international students at this moment in time, and that's partly down to the hostile environment, which was yeah. made very difficult for international students and made clear that they really weren't that welcome. And, for example, the post-work visa uh, was was abolished for after graduation. Mm-hmm. If you want, want to work in the UK, that was abolished. That's now being brought back in this immigration bill, but the ink's still not dry on it. It's still not still not over the, over the line. Um, and... That that that's that that's a that's a big that's a big issue for for universities. It's compounded then by COVID, and the British Council, whose job it is to go out and advertise and promote uh, British education exports, are saying that British universities could lose up to two billion pounds just from the yeah. South Asian market alone next yeah. year. Yeah. So yeah, I remember I remember a professor telling me once when he was recruiting in China for I think it was Exeter University um and um parents in particular in China their main question was is it safe is it safe and this was you know a decade ago money wasn't the obstacle and the the, the very high fees for foreign students it was you know will my child be safe in your country um and I suppose covid is is now you know making people question whether or not it's safe to come here to study yeah, there's two two things about that. One, which was at the start of the outbreak of the pandemic, there was instances of anti-Chinese racism, which were reported reported back in in China. That that, that was that was well noted. But I had vice chancellors on the phone phone to me, um, tearing their hair out, saying, "What is the government doing around face coverings? We just don't look like a serious country. If we ever want international students." to come back, especially Chinese students, Korean, Korean students, then we've got to act on this quickly. And it may now all be, all be a bit too late on that. And one of the, the, the issues with financing, that there is obviously such big problems from all different directions about the financing universities. And people often explain about vice-chancellor salaries um, and that they are hard to justify. Why are they so high? Is it is it the, just the way, because they could be doing, you know, you've got to compete with them when they could be off running a, I don't know, a newspaper group or a oil company? I haven't met many vice-chancellors who could run a newspaper <laughs> or an oil company, to, to be honest with you. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a couple of things to say about it. One, it's a, one, it's a story because universities have become part of the, the culture war and they make good copy for certain newspapers. Uh, one, one of whom's education correspondent told, told me their editor just can't get enough university stories, let's have more. But in saying that, I would say two things. One, that if you actually took the median vice chancellor's salary and pegged it against equivalent kind of jobs in the public sector, like running an NHS trust or being a chief executive of a local council, it's not that out of whack. But there are maybe about a dozen individuals in the country who have behaved quite badly around 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 salary, be quite unrepentant uh, about salary and doubled down at a time when other other parts of the economy, other parts of the public sector have been experiencing austerity and they haven't haven't made it easy for themselves. Martin, it's um it's Ben here. Some people say 
unfairly, I think, that they um, they value education, but they question why universities need special treatment when they say they've become, quote, diversity, hospitality businesses. I'm just wondering, do you think is higher education, in a sense, the author of its own misfortune to some degree? Universities are full of people who have only ever spent their lives in universities. Uh, in fact, they've probably never left school and they've never worked anywhere other than other than education and they're not quite sure what goes on in the outside outside world. So when people point out all the advantages and privileges that people in universities have, they say, but this is this is outrageous. I've I've had my research allowance cut by two hours. Um so on the one hand, universities don't know how good they've had it and they haven't haven't made it easy for themselves in terms of responding to public criticism about uni- about universities i think it was, it was very obvious once students started paying nine and a half nine thousand two hundred and fifty pounds for 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 fees that there would be an interest in that from parents from the media and and, and so on universities haven't responded well well to it but at this moment in time given where we are with COVID, the problems that universities are facing are really genuine and and severe. And all of those things that led to things like vice-chancellor salaries or high, high tuition fees, they're kind of not important at this moment in time. They, they're, they're, not, they're, they're, not the, they're not the issue. And what we've got to, to ensure is that universities have, a, have capacity once we get out of this, that the danger is that with the cuts coming and without any government help coming on on the horizon, the only thing that universities can do is start cutting courses and cutting staff. Um, and there'll be a scarring of the higher education sector as a result of this, which will be difficult to, to recover from. Because the economy, the economy is desperately going to need it uh, once we get out of it. So, Martin, finally, you mentioned, um, you know, that newspapers love university stories. Universities have been ground zero of the culture wars, you know, since the 60s. When you read feverish newspaper articles about sort of safe spaces, trigger warnings, uh, so-called cultural Marxism, um, do you recognise the reality of, of university life at all? Or is that just a kind of a very particular slice of it that is magnified, uh, you know, in political conversations? There's actually very little evidence of that sort of thing going on in in universities. I remember uh, the former uh, universities minister, Sam Gima, would always be making uh, claims about uh, examples of censorship or having to to listen to long speeches about safe spaces before he was allowed to to speak at a university. And most of it turned out to be... There was a lack of evidence to support his claims. Let's 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 let's, let's put it that way. Um, and we don't people in universities really don't don't rec- recognise that as a character caricature. The problem that universities face in respect to the issue of free speech is the multiple and competing legislation around equality um, that they have to not only make sure people have the right to right to speak in universities, but they also have to uh, guard against hate speech and make sure that they are fulfilling their obligations uh, against leg- leg- legislation on, on, on equality. And student unions are in an even worse position because they also have to comply with legislation for charities. Most of, the, most of them are most of them are charitable organisations. And it's difficult to try and 
reconcile all of all of this competing information. But what you tend to have is a few examples that then end up in the front page of the Daily Telegraph, and that stands for the whole the whole of, of universities. When in fact, there's very little of it going on uh, across the country. Martin McQuillan, thanks so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. How is government coping with the pressures of these extraordinary times? What innovations are needed to face the challenges of the strange new world we're in? And what can the past teach us about how to run a country in times of crises such as these? We need to work out a better way of holding accountable organisations actually accountable. At the Institute for Government, we're dedicated to better government. And throughout the lockdown, we're turning our famous debates, panels and discussions into a new listening experience, IFG Live, so that everyone can hear the best ideas and most original thinking for improving the way our government works. We have to be able to do big things fast before a problem is staring us in the face. That's IFG Live from the Institute for Government, now available at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our segment, To the Barricades. This week, the cause comes from our season campaigner, Ben Stewart. My friends, I'm afraid we have to talk about climate change. Um, I know that um, the pandemic takes up so much of our headspace and it's difficult to focus on any other existential threat to civilization. But I have been obsessed with the Arctic for some time, ever since I led an ex- expedition up there with Greenpeace to um, target oil rigs that were drilling in the Arctic. And I remember one afternoon we sailed past the capital of Greenland, Nuuk, and it was 25 degrees. And I was sunbathing out on the deck of our ship, the Esperanza, and thinking, this is very odd. This is climate change. This week, a temperature of 38 degrees was registered in the Arctic Circle. And um, a European monitoring station suggests that there might even have been a temperature of 45 degrees centigrade in the last couple of days. That is a temperature higher than we have ever experienced in this country, higher than anybody has ever experienced in recorded history, Miami, Florida. And our future will be decided in in the Arctic. If temperatures rise precipitously there, then the Arctic sea ice will melt. Uh, the dark sea will absorb heat rather than reflecting it. The permafrost will melt and it will be a feedback loop that leads to very, very severe consequences for us. Therefore, I was thinking, who would we support at the moment if we wanted to do something about climate change? And I've always been a big fan of the UK Student Climate Network, the the school kids that launched the school strikes last year. They had so much momentum when the lockdown came and they weren't able to strike because they were all at home anyway. But if and when they get back to school, no doubt they'll want to start the student climate strike actions again. So offer them some support by going to UKSCN.org. If you're a kid, go there and register. If you have kids, maybe urge your kids to go there and register. But scary, scary things are happening in the Arctic at the moment. And those kids had a plan. And I think we should support them. Thanks, ma'am. Finally this week, get Brexit done too. Get Brexit done harder. (laughs) Michael Gove is apparently planning an advertising campaign to prepare Britain for the end of the transition period and a potential no deal. Next month, people will be warned of the, quote, consequences and opportunity ahead before the campaign moves into a shock and awe phase from September to November. That being the lovely phrase made famous by the bombing of Baghdad in 2003. (laughs) Namely, it's going to cost apparently just over five million pounds, which is uh, a tenth of the amount they spent on get ready for Brexit. So it's going to have to be targeted. Uh, Who are they aiming this at? 
Well, I wonder if they're aiming it at Romaniacs listeners again because they sponsored our podcast last time with Get Ready for Brexit. So who knows? Um, look, let's remember that uh, more than 6,000 people, uh, Iraqis, were killed uh, in that bombing of Baghdad. So I'd infer that the government definitely is anticipating a risk to life from no deal. And they'd be right to uh, because of the disruptions to food and medicine. So um, I think they'll have to be aiming it at everybody and in particular uh, people concerned about um, you know, access to life-saving drugs. I mean, shock and awe just seems like a ridiculous phrase to use in this context. Like it made sense, uh, uh, ugly though it was, it does make sense in the context of war because this is what you want to achieve. Um, I, I don't really know how they're going to meant to sort of shock and awe people into uh, preparing for something no deal preparing for something that they were about grow, to inf- grow your own inflict veg, on their yeah. own citizens yeah like, well it is a culture war isn't it and we are in a culture war and this is part of their militaristic jingoist language that that they use and throw around because they think it works with their core base which sometimes it does and increasingly i don't think will um a january poll showed that 74 percent of people had not got ready for Brexit. um we have had this experience of panic buying and uh temporary shortages in the supermarkets due to COVID-19. Does, do you think that's going to make people likely to take the realities or the potential realities of no deal more seriously? Because they've they've just experienced what it's like uh, to see sort of empty shelves and long queues. Yeah, I think so. Uh, on the food and, and medicines front, certainly, you know, we've, we've pretty much had a je- dress rehearsal. Um, and if they don't, they're foolish because this kind of disruption is genuinely about shortage rather than logistical distribution of food to the right places, which, which is what we had during uh, the, the, the coronavirus um, lockdown issues about getting access and, uh, you know, people not being able to get flour isn't because there isn't enough flour. It's because there aren't enough small packages to put it in for all the people uh, that have decided that now they are going to, you know, birth their sourdough starter. Um, so uh, this is this is actually going to be about insufficient amounts of fresh food and life-saving medicines being able to get in. Uh, and I think people now believe that in a way they didn't before, and it was dismissed as part of Project Fear. Ben, the government's using the same firm that handled Get Ready for Brexit, which, according to the National Audit Office, had extraordinarily little effect. Um, you're good at public messaging. If you decided to become a cynical breadhead and take a job to lead this campaign to convince the public, uh, how would you? How would you do it? What do you think is is actually going to? If all of that money and messaging just didn't have any effect, like what can you do to move people um, to actually make preparations? Well, the things the forty six million quid that they spent last time wasn't designed to inform people about the dangers of a no-deal Brexit. I mean, I spoke to a guy from a major London advertising agency and went through um, those adverts with him. I, I was trying to get hold of the pitch that the government had sent out because I thought it would be revealing. We didn't get hold of it. But what, what this guy said was, this is patently not designed to inform people about it. This is designed to convince people that Brexit is inevitable. So look, if I was doing that job, the first thing you would have to do is say, I'm going to be honest. You know, asking this government to, to issue accurate public communications on a no-deal Brexit is like asking Benson and Hedges to design an NHS anti-smoking campaign. You know, they don't want to tell the public the truth. Uh, and they can't, the Foreign Secretary wasn't even aware of the importance of the Dover-Calais crossing. The Prime Minister has consistently lied or failed to understand the border arrangements between two of the nations of the United Kingdom. 
So if you sit down and you say, I'm going to be honest with the British people and inform them, they would look something like, dare I say, the adverts that Led by Donkeys put up around the time of the last campaign, where we used the same library and font, but said, get, get ready for potential medical supply shortages. Um, get ready for big queues at Dover and Calais. And that would be a useful thing to tell people. Um, but I think another, you know, that, that former campaign, I think was potentially also directed at Brussels to try to convince Brussels that we, the British, were serious about going for a no-deal Brexit. And I do wonder whether this shock and awe campaign is also, to a certain extent, directed at Brussels anyway. You know, it's part of this kind of myth that we persuaded Brussels to blink when, in fact, we just amputated Northern Ireland from the UK. Um, so, yeah, if I was in charge of it, and um, I think I'd probably do it for 350 million quid. If I was if I was to do it, then I would just be honest with the British people and say what a no-deal Brexit really means. Yeah, I'm afraid you, you haven't got the job. <laughs> you're, you're, you're being honest with the British people, shtick, isn't going to fly here. <laughs> It's a fundamental weakness in my um, application. <laughs> in a blast of the past news, UKIP has elected its sixth full-time leader in four years, the political equivalent of a spinal tap drummer. Freddie Vatcher <laughs> made his debut in front of a statue of Winston Churchill in Parliament Square, calling both Labour and the Tories cowards and traitors. He has listed Nazi Germany and the Belgian Congo Holocaust among his interests. Sounds like a dating Jeez. app here. Claims he could speak American and enjoys growing hot chilies to, in order to enjoy spicy hot takes. Um, <laughs> Naomi, watching Vatch's peculiar speech, it just seemed like a full-on fringe crank party. Is there any serious reason for UKIP to exist now that the Brexit party does? Um, yeah, they, they exist to make the Brexit party look competent, surely. Um, look, the, the only person who has said it well about these guys, I think, is uh, David Cameron himself, who about uh, 15 years ago now called, said, UKIP is sort of a bunch of fruitcakes and loonies and closet racists, mostly. Uh, and I don't think a, a better description has been devised for them. I'll leave it there. So, Ben, do you agree that this is all that, this is all that UKIP is ever going to be? Because it's all that people who are interested in UKIP want that they, they they need to be uh weird cranks obsessed with the second world war yeah i mean look they haven't got the european elections anymore which was their springboard both to finance and to fame um i think the only way that they could claw back some relevance is to go into the transfer market and and sign nigel farage but there's no sign of that happening um so i think you get are merely a national curiosity now but keep your eye on farage he's the danger and that's the end of the podcast. The Brexit Bridge will return next week. Thanks to Naomi, Ben, and our special guest, Martin McQuillan. Now it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Kristen Armstrong, Hugh Penny, Lucy Brady, James, Margot Lepere, and Chris Emery. And thanks from me to David Ham, Christopher Howard, Kate Blakeburn, Lewis Back, Siobhan Curry, and Robert Hardy. And thanks from me to Anthony Short, Jane Quinn, Amanda, Julia Crook, Renard Schoolmeasters, and Alexander Gwilliam. Take care. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was produced and presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ben Stewart. The producer was Andrew Harrison, and audio production scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer with Jacob Archibald on Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.